Welcome, everybody, to Debt Talk Live. And today, on our very special afternoon episode, I'm very happy to have with us Prano Bailey Bond, writer and director of the great new movie, Censor. Prano, thank you so much for being here with us. How are you doing? I'm great, thanks. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It is my pleasure to have you here with us, and we have so much to talk about. First of all, I want to say you have such a cool name. <laughs> Prano <laughs> Bailey Bond. That is just such a cool, cool name. <laughs> anyway, with that out of the way, uh, Censor, okay? Let's just go right into Censor. We have so much to talk about with this movie. Uh, it's still, it's been advertised here in the United States uh, for several months. I've been reading about it to my viewers. I've been showing them trailers. We've been watching them at the same time. Finally got released and I watched it. I loved it. Now, the premise of Censor, the the movie takes place in the 1980s, okay? Yeah. Now, in the 1980s, I was 6 to 16. That was my decade right there. So I was still pretty young. Now, the movie really touches upon how back then... Uh, the media was really attacking the horror genre for a lot of real world uh, bad stuff that people were doing. They were blaming movies, uh, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, as the writer of this film, uh, was that really how it went down in the United Kingdom? Uh, did you exaggerate it a little bit? How much research did you do into that? No exaggeration whatsoever. In fact, there's more bonkers crazy stuff that happened that kind of needs to be in a documentary because if it's in a fiction you just think it's made up the the headlines and the tabloid um like newspapers were going for horror you know they were they were basically saying that vhs horror was the reason for all the terrible things that were happening in the world and there were headlines like taken over by something evil from the tv set with these like illustrations of kids watching tv with these like goat demons coming out of the tv to like grab the children there was this amazing headline which was called pony maniac strikes again oh, man. and it was actually it was only a tiny little article but it was about an attack on ponies in a rural part of england and the police statement the police statement for um, this act of violence on ponies was that the attacker was probably affected by either video nasties or the full moon. <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> okay, so not only is it video nasties that are making people do these things, but also now the police believe that the moon has supernatural powers. So it was just this really insane time. And obviously I was really young, so I'm looking back at that time, remembering little snippets, but mostly I've been kind of looking back as an adult and, you know, knowing the environment and kind of Thatcher's Britain that yeah. I grew up in, um, you really see that VHS horror became a really easy scapegoat for, you know, decisions that politicians were making yeah. that were you know, making life not as good for society. It was, um, I'm sorry, I was just, I was just going to say it was easier for the media to blame movies, the full moon, rather than the real scary truth that evil lies within people. Yeah. 
Exactly. You know? uh, like I said, I was pretty young back in the 80s as well. Uh, my brother, who's, on, who's over nine years older than me, I asked him after watching Censor, do you remember anything like this happening in the United States? He's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, you know, he didn't, you know, here, the, the movies that were displayed in Censor, your movie, is what here in the United States we would call like the B-type horror movies in the 80s. Yeah where they were just going for as much gore, guts, and blood as they possibly could. Uh, in your research, was that was the United Kingdom like the forefront of the media problem? Did it spill over a lot into the United States as well? It feels like this specific thing around video nasty, was, it was very much a UK thing. You know, the United Kingdom had... The, one of the most conservative reactions, you know, in the Western world to these films. And that's the thing that's really bizarre about it. I mean, I've heard people over in the States compare it to the satanic panic. Yeah. Um, and that there are maybe equivalents with like rock music and things like that over there. But uh, I don't. And now think... video games too. Exactly. Yeah. And in the 50s, it was comic books that yeah. were going to turn little boys into monsters, you know. And um, but it's really mad that there was just this little pocket of time for the UK where this reaction happened. And it, it's kind of off the back of, you know, you've got to remember that VHS was a new form of technology and there was this real fear around how this like ability to watch films in our own homes, rewind and rewatch things over and over again. Those were the things the censors were concerned about. Mm -hmm. um, obviously also the fact that anyone could get their hands on these films in the home. Yeah. But it's quite crazy when you think about it now. I mean, all those films have been remade, not all of them obviously, mm -hmm. but the ones that people kind of really remember and celebrate. Um, they've been remade, things like The Evil Dead, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Cannibal Holocaust, I Spit on Your Grave. Oh, yeah. um, and now we have, like, you know, we're being sold the freedom to watch what we want when we want now. And it's just flipped so much. So I just find it really interesting that we have these little moments in history where we're just so scared of what a new form of technology is going to do to us. Like we think that, you know, we're like one bit of technology away from just snapping mm -hmm. and our like, in a dark side being unleashed yeah. and you know how much how scared we are of ourselves yeah. Yeah. in a way it's uh, really interesting a lot of people don't realize that um the united kingdom and, and the united states have two completely different rating systems for when it comes to films uh like here we have the r rating the pg-13 uh there what like in today's world uh what is the equivalent of an r rating in the united kingdom I think it would be an 18. Okay. Yeah. So they do it I've by got, age. I've got a badges from the BBFC. One second, I'm going to get them. Hang okay. on. Hopefully I won't destroy my little No, set. no, I'd love to see that. So um, the BBFC sent me a, a, a little uh, gift bag. So I have these, which are the ratings here. So wow. these are badges. Yeah. So you've got U, certificate... PG, so parental guidance, 12A, uh, 12. 12, and 15 and 18. So I guess 18 is probably your R, I would have thought. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I is, thought one for every occasion. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. i never seen that before, so thank you for sharing that uh, with us. Now let's go back to the movie. 
the the story, the film, uh, fell on the character on on of Enid on her shoulders, uh, and uh, Niam. Did I pronounce her name correct? Yeah, it's Neve. It's an Irish name. Neve. So Neve yeah. did a brilliant job uh, of carrying this movie uh, from a woman who took her job very seriously as a censor. And then we find out she has suffered a past trauma. And what I loved what you did in both writing and directing this and bringing it to life is how you blended this rational woman in the beginning. And slowly as the film progressed, you saw film reality her job meld into one yeah. uh in the writing part was that very difficult for you to do um it was definitely i think writing is one of the most difficult parts of filmmaking because you're you're doing so much research and you've got so many ideas and then you're trying to make those into a a story that you know keeps all the bits that you need and and says things in the way you want them to and has a meaning. Um, so I definitely found the writing part, for me anyway, is, is always one of the most challenging parts. Um, I guess I always sort of broke down the film into worlds. So I imagined her reality as, you know, Thatcher's Britain, grey, oppressive, bleak. You know, we often see the 80s as like this um, very hyper-pop, version where it's like big ghetto blasters and shoulder pads and things but that's not the 80s that I mm -hmm. see when I look at pictures of my you know childhood and uh and real life in the UK it was kind of much more I don't know drudgy and dowdy than yeah. than all that you know so I kind of broke it into so you've got her reality and then you have her memories her which are very unreliable as memories are her dreams and the worlds of the video nasties. And I kind of, I guess, built those worlds even as I was writing, you've kind of picturing them. And I, I am quite visual and audio when I write, I write in lots of detail about sound and an image. Um, and, but you're kind of building those worlds and sort of imagining how they're going to weave together, like you described. Um, so that's certainly something that you're putting together in the script, but also the idea is inherently doing that as well, because it's about somebody who is has a gap in their memory and they're filling that gap with fiction. Um, it was really fun. Like now I can look back on the writing process and think it was really fun because it's the kind of thing where you make those little discoveries as you go and things click together and um, they're amazing moments, but obviously yeah. in between all that, you're sitting at your desk going, ah, <laughs> quite a lot. So the writing is done. Now you're behind the camera directing the set. Principal photography has started. Uh, how? First of all, let me ask you this question. Was the casting process for Enid, uh, pro, uh, did it take a long time for you to find the person that you wanted to represent Enid? Um, I think I saw about 70 actresses for Enid, so quite a lot. I saw, I met some amazing women, you know. It was really 
incredible because you start to go, wow, there's so many amazing actresses out there. But Neve came in and read for the part. And I'd seen her in a show over here. It's a TV series called The Virtues. Mm -hmm. And I'd already met her as well before that. We were on this kind of Screen International cohort thing called the Screen Stars of Tomorrow. So I'd met her there, saw her in The Virtues and was like, wow. I mean, she's nothing like Enid in The Virtues at all. Um, but she's incredible in that. And I was like, okay, this is a really interesting actress. Um, I knew when I was writing the script that I would have to find somebody who could carry the film because she's, yeah, she's in every single scene ultimately, except for when she's a child. So this actor is going to have to be somebody that will keep our attention, but not just that Enid's quite a closed character. So how, how can we find someone who's going to let us in to that? And when Neve came in and read, she has this ability to put thought on screen. Um, and that's what I needed because Enid's so closed as a character. I needed somebody who was going to bring, I guess, bring an empathy to the role as well. Mm-hmm. And that's what Neve does for all her roles. Yeah. But she she had this kind of coiled spring version of Enid at the beginning. And then she has so much range that she was able to sort of take us to the other extreme of the end of the film. Yeah. So she did both of those in the auditions and um, I was really excited to, to like have the opportunity to work with her. So yeah, it was, it was a, a very exciting casting, but so, yeah, I saw quite a few people in the process. So when you cast a Neve and you're like, okay, this is going to be my Enid, I would assume that you two spent uh, a lot of one-on-one time uh, letting her know your vision of how you want the character of Enid. And she probably had a lot of questions herself about what you wanted. Did you guys find yourselves spending a lot of one-on-one time uh, going back and forth, explaining the role? Yeah, 100%. We we cast Neve maybe a couple of months before we shot. So we had this buffer period where maybe it wasn't even that much but it felt like we had a good chunk of time but neve was actually working in cape town so we did everything via skype um majority like the majority of our conversations were on skype so we'd like jump on skype every weekend and in the week i would have been sending her essays and you know newspaper headlines and uh, films and all kinds of things to look at and research um, and then at the weekend, we talk about those things. We talk about Enid. You're basically trying to tran- transfer all the ideas and thoughts you've had when you've been writing the script into the actor's head, but then also leave enough space for them to bring their ideas as well and make sure that those ideas work with the story that you're telling. Um, but I think it's important that you're leaving room for the actor to take ownership yeah. of the character basically so you don't um, want to suffocate them exactly yeah and and it was it was such a lovely collaboration with neve i really i remember dreaming before uh you know before casting the role thinking i just really hope i meet somebody who i end up being you know you don't it's not like you're looking for a friend but you kind of want to go through this experience that you know is going to be really intense you're going to have to work with that person in really intense uh situations and like i say they're in every single scene so you're just hoping it's someone you get along with and we got along brilliantly and we've stayed very good friends she was was 
absolutely brilliant. And like I said, uh, that's why I, I focused on the casting question because that must have been a hard job for you because you knew that the success or failure of this film depended depended on you putting that right person in that role. Yeah. And she ju just was fantastic and yeah. just absolutely uh, wonderful. Before we proceed, Censor uh, got released here in the United States uh, like in July. Did it? Yeah, June, June 11th. Yeah. June 11th. Did it get released at the same time in the United Kingdom or did it get released earlier there? No, it's just been released here. So it was released in cinemas on August the 20th. In the United I Kingdom in the united kingdom i've just been doing like a uk q a tour so that finished on saturday okay. so um and we we go on to vod in a few a couple of weeks i think over here so yeah it's still in cinemas here now that's awesome uh in the united states i believe it just went straight to video on demand am i correct it had a week in theaters over there so it did have a small theatrical release and then it went to to vod yeah okay now for all our audience members who have not watched this movie yet it's called censor and it's available on any uh your digital streaming retailer of choice amazon voodoo uh please watch this movie it's amazing uh what kind of reaction have you been getting uh, from the Q&A sessions you've been doing on your tour throughout the United Kingdom? Uh, are you, uh, as we discussed in our messages prior to this, are you getting a lot of people who want to get your take on different parts of the movie and what they, um, what they represented? I told you, uh, I mentioned to you in our message before this interview that I love the fact that you did not hand it over to us on a silver platter and that you left a lot open for viewer interpretation. The people that I have spoken to here in the United States, fans, even team members of mine, they're like, I'm really confused about this, this, and this. And the best that I can do is I can offer them, I mean, I think I got it, but as talking to different people, I'm like, wait a minute, I have my interpretation, okay? And I think everybody else is gonna have their interpretation. So going back to the question, are you getting a lot of fans approaching you saying, hey, what was this about? What did you really mean by this? What's the Q&A like? The Q&As have been brilliant and the reaction's been really great. I've had, um, I guess there's been like questions that have leaned towards like, so what really happened to Nina? Um that kind of thing and there's also been a podcast over here called the final girls and they've done three episodes so far called censor this and it's um i think the first one they have a film writer like a journalist come on and and she's like i had my version so worked out and i knew exactly what it was in my head and i was totally convinced and then i came out of of the cinema and spoke to a friend and they'd had the complete opposite and were completely convinced the other way. And so I think that's really interesting because for me, the film needs to be left slightly ambiguous in terms of, um, you know, elements that Enid is never going to know, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's more interesting for me um, to stay authentic and truthful to Enid's point of view. And that's always what I intended. I think the point is that 
the things she never knows we should never know and those are the things that have driven her to this point um that is ultimately the horror of the film is the not knowing and it's far more interesting for people to come away and have conversations about what they read than for me to you know to explain it to it, them to explain it and give yeah. it all to them you know i think that's where it, it it's interesting to me that people can have these arguments and you know i'm trying to not say things too clearly because i know some people won't yeah. have watched the film who are watching this so i'm trying to like oh i know i know exactly what you mean yeah. and the bottom line is this movie is going to spark uh interesting discussions amongst people uh in regards to the ending at which point did enid really start losing touch uh when did she get really sucked into her job what i loved about the ending is those split second uh flashes okay we're not going to go into detail we're not going to spoil it but those split second flashes it reminded me of another movie that came out recently and that is um saint maud uh, have okay. you seen saint maud yeah i'm friends with the director of rose saint glass yeah okay now saint maud another great film uh you don't actually get to see reality and literally until the last split second before the credits roll okay yeah. if you've seen the movie you know exactly yeah. what i'm talking about and uh seeing the ending of censor uh sort of reminded me of that where those split second flashback well they're not flashbacks but those flashes yeah. that we see as uh enid gets the ending that she wants in life and what she's been hoping for since the trauma she suffered as a little child. That was very brilliantly done. Uh, when it came to the directing part, okay, and even afterwards, post-production, when, because uh, you are also an editor, I don't know if you played a part in editing this, but uh, were you in the editing room with the editors working out that last five minutes and how you wanted it to be shown on the screen? Yeah, I mean, you plan everything in advance in terms of like something like that moment, the moments you're describing are very carefully shot in order to be able to achieve that in the edit. Because um, if you break down what you're seeing, the actors are in exactly the same place um, in the same location but we've taken you know some of the dressing out of the background we've changed their clothes um then you know there's the post-production side but on set you're keeping everything as accurate as possible you need the shot to be locked off um so it's really carefully uh you know precisely shot into in order to get the results you need in the edit so you you you're planning that in advance of even shooting it and then I worked with a really great editor called Mark Towns, who also edited St. Maud, funnily enough. That's right. um, however, I hadn't seen St. Maud until last October. So after we'd locked picture on Centre, yeah. because it didn't come out here in the cinema until the end of last year. Um, and I could see what pe why people might draw that comparison, even though they're very different endings in lots of other ways but mm -hmm. there's a similar technique being used there but it, it's interesting because obviously 
we both made our films quite separately. Um, so yeah, then in the edit room, um, I mean, essentially the editor is assembling the film as you're shooting. So with that end sequence, I remember seeing that for the first time assembled. And it was quite funny actually, because um, my editor Mark had received the rushes for the, the scenes and he hadn't been sent the sound for some reason. So he thought we just hadn't shot sound. And he, you know, we, I think I'd said, suggested to use the blank mass track that's on there, it's called Chernobyl. And he put that on and it's really immersive and it makes you feel like you're kind of in this sort of strange floaty bubble. And then, you know, Enid was just miming the, the, the dialogue. And I came away and I was like, I love that. I love that you left the sound out. And he said, oh, well, I, nobody sent me the sound. I thought you didn't shoot sound. And I said, no, 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 we shot sound. So I remembered very clearly. And, and it was there. It was just it hadn't been sent over properly. But we I was like, I, let's leave it with no dialogue. Let's keep her miming because it felt more like she was in this sort of strange fantasy bubble. So there's like little happy accidents that happen like that. But Mark put that sequence together in the edit and we did we did work on it more together. But it was one of the sequences that I remember it didn't change a huge amount. Like there's some scenes that you, you know, the editor will assemble that scene mm -hmm. and you kind of keep needing to like work on it and change it and you're trying to find the right way around. Whereas that scene was one of the scenes that didn't have loads of fiddling done to it. Yeah. It just felt quite, you know, and I like it when that happens, like that you kind of find the way it's supposed to be yeah. quite early on. That makes it feel like, you know, as a director, you've, you've kind of, done a good job of that scene basically exactly yeah now, so, be, um, now being an editor and i think that is a great advantage when someone is directing a lot of directors don't really understand the process of editing some do some really don't they know how to go in the editing room and post and work with the editors but you being an editor and being behind the camera uh, how much of a boost and a leg up do you think that gives you, uh, just knowing how it's going to be put together afterwards? I think it's really helpful because when you're planning how you're going to shoot a scene, you can be quite clear in your head how you're going to cut it together. Mm -hmm. So it means that you're not wasting time getting shots that you don't think you're going to need. Yeah. So it means that I'll go into a scene, hopefully being more efficient because there's never enough time to shoot all the things you want. So um, knowing that, you know, this is how you want the scene to play out, even if that does change, like it might be that you get on set and you can't do something or you find a better way. And then it may be that you send that over to the editor and they do something that you didn't expect that, you know, you're really excited by things transform, but at least you're going in with quite a clear plan. And I definitely think that having a background in editing makes me feel more confident in that sense like yeah. if you need to drop something or combine two shots you kind of know how it's going to cut but also my background has been you know a lot in um factual editing so documentary and and in documentary editing you're you're finding the story a lot of the time in the edit so there's an element of being a writer with pictures when you're yeah. i think editing factual so it's got that storytelling training as well as the kind of onset, like nuts and bolts of putting a scene together training. So I always say if 
you know any young filmmaker i'm like learn to edit even if you want to be a dop if you want to shoot and be a cinematographer i think if you know how to edit you're gonna shoot stuff that that just comes together more beautifully i think and going just staying down this editor thing just for a little bit longer there are so many uh kids out there teenagers who uh have access to technology that didn't exist 20 30 years ago and they come out with these amazing edits and they send them to me and i'm like wow you got real talent and if you ever want a career in this industry just the the skills that you have now uh will give you such a boost and a leg up whether you decide to go to film school after high school or whatever it's a real big boost now going back to enid i want to because the movie is up to interpretation and i believe a lot of it is even you as the writer you probably just have your opinion of what happens to enid i don't want to hear your opinion on this do you think enid was over that cliff's edge from the very beginning of the film and she was just really good at concealing it for the first half of the film or do you believe there was a trigger when she saw that one film uh that pushed her over the cliff Mm. so good question it's something we talked about a lot in the development process i always saw her as fairly over the cliff from the start and one of the conversations that we'd have a lot in development with the executives were conversations around like how broken is she at the beginning and allowing her to have somewhere to go because I always saw her as being quite cracked right from the start that this is somebody who's basically like holding their life together in the only way that they know how but also in a way hasn't really ever lived Mm -hmm. you know she's she's not really got a social life you know mm-hmm. she's lived her life in guilt um you know she's afraid of letting people in because she believes that deep down she's a terrible person and that she's rotten inside and if people get too close they might work that out as well mm-hmm. so she's kind of um concealing a lot at the beginning you know and i see this as a film about self censorship and as well as censorship in art and film it's about a person who's censoring who they are and who or who they think they are and because of that they're they have this very difficult relationship with maybe the darker side of themselves which yeah. you see in the scene where she meets frederick north for the first time and he says you know something about you need to get in touch with the dark side of yourself. And she says, there is. I love that scene. I love that scene in the woods. I think that's, you know, the, the, at the heart of the film really is, this is a person who will not acknowledge that they have a dark side and we all have a dark side, you know, and the more we pretend that, you know, that doesn't exist. And the same way you can do with horror and with society and all the bad things, actually the worse it's going to get, we have to kind of acknowledge these things and deal with them and that's the healthy way in my opinion and I think it's why repression is such a great subject for horror because horror is like the return of the repressed it's the thing that's gonna basically boil up and become more and more twisted the more you fight it and eventually it's gonna turn into a monster and it's gonna eat you you know the thing that you don't want to face in yourself or you don't want to face in the world it'll come and get you in the end 
<laughs> now, is Enid's profession just something that she just fell into, or is it still her trying to, well, she hasn't given up on uh, her family and searching. Uh, do, you, do you think her profession as a censor is her way of not stop looking and continuing to look to see if she will find that thing that she's been missing? Or do you think it's just a job that she just landed uh, because of, you know, whatever, skills and whatnot? And mm. what's your take on that? Yeah, well, she does say in the film that I do this to protect people. And so I always saw her as using censorship as a way to make up for what she didn't do for her sister, which was she didn't protect her sisters. Exactly. So she's taking on the responsibility of protecting everyone from the horror in fiction um but we did talk a lot about you know what other jobs she might have done so for example you know in her backstory one of the other jobs we always imagined her doing was like a playground health and safety officer mm -hmm. and like that she went you know we we even had at one point that she went to schools because the census during this period actually it was a part-time job but we we didn't feel it fitted in the film in the end. Yeah. But, you know, we had these kind of scenes very early on in the script where she'd go to schools and and um, and be talking to young people and kind of we'd get a sense of like her previous life as a health and safety inspector, you know, and she's yeah. kind of constantly trying to make everything safe and protect everybody. Yeah. Um, so that was really the reason for her, you know, yeah. her coming to this job. Now, a big turning point in the movie for me, what I call Enid's point of no return, is when she visits the, uh, the home of that horror filmmaker, okay? Mm -hmm. She goes in, she even recognizes, she's a censor, she recognizes parts of his house that have been used in his movies, uh, then it goes really south. And her lack of emotion, when that happens, uh I think that's when Enid's point of no return uh, just, it happened. There's no going back uh, for her. She's completely flipped over. Uh, one of the greatest scenes in the movie as well and how that just went completely south. Uh, now, the way it played out in, in that sequence, it was an accident. Uh, he was attacking her. She was trying to protect herself. And like I said, things went south. Uh, is that how you, you originally wanted that scene to play out? Did you wrestle with how you wanted that very pivotal scene to go? Tell us about it. Yeah, no, it was always intended like that, that it's a, a sorry accident, ultimately. Um, uh, but it is, like you say, it definitely is a turning point for her and a point of no return because what's happening in that moment is what she's watching on screen day in day out is now in the real world mm -hmm. and so that's also echoed like you say in the fact that she finds herself in a set of one of the films she's watched at work and so it was all about like i guess the the echo of her the fiction kind of echoing into reality yeah. so yeah it was it's so it feels like ages ago since since I wrote that that scene or since me and my co-writer Anthony Fletcher would have been writing that scene the thing I remember the most about 
writing those scenes is how much fun it was to write Doug Smart, the character, yeah. because he's just so. Well, I'll I tell you, what, you know, let me describe, and then I want to hear your. Yeah, you go for it. He came across as one of the sleazy porn filmmakers. Yeah, that that's my description. Yeah, 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 one hundred percent. And and there's something about writing characters that are kind of unashamedly awful yeah but also he's got he does have this sort of vulnerability in a way because he's got an ego mm -hmm. you know and his ego can be bruised and that makes him dangerous yeah. um and so that kind of character is really really fun to write so he it was weird because i felt i felt like he just somehow like rolled off the i don't off the tongue is that the right way when you're yeah. writing but uh, you know, I don't know. I have like an inner sleazy uh, porn filmmaker in me or something <laughs> that like it just came out very naturally. <laughs> now, um, do, you, yeah. do you think uh, what's it? What was his character's name? Doug, right? Doug, Doug, Doug yeah, Smart. Yeah. yeah. And Frederick. Do you think they saw uh, behind the facade that Enid was putting up, like when Doug first meets her at the office, you think him and then, of course, Frederick later on in the woods, uh, they saw through that facade of this, that, like I said, she was putting up of trying to protect people and saw the dark nature inside her? I don't think they do. The funny thing with directing those scenes is you're, you're in Enid's head, you know, so you need to make the scenes work for Enid's perspective. But actually, the other characters, they're maybe not even intending what she's interpreting in the way that she's interpreting it, mm -hmm. you know. So Doug sees her as a, a pretty thing. Yeah. You know, he's probably seen her name in the papers because yeah. of what's happened I mean, with the amnesiac killer. He's a pure misogynist. Yeah, exactly. And Frederick is a you know, ego, egotistical director who's thoroughly bored by these actresses who keep turning up, you know. So there's always another perspective, but the challenge on set with, you know, directing the other actor in the scene was always that you need to make it truthful for that character, you know, but also we're in Enid's head. So mm -hmm. we need to be hearing it how Enid hears it. But I also wanted it to feel like it could work if we were in their version of the scene as well. Yeah. Now, in the uh, towards the middle end, and towards the beginning of the third act, or middle of the third act, uh, the best way to describe Enid is sort of what in real life would be a, a stalker fan, a person who doesn't differentiate an actor's character from the actor doing the job. And mm. that happens a lot. It happens yeah. to people today. Uh, where they do a job and their character does something that the audience doesn't like, and the actor receives death threats, mm -hmm. which is ridiculous. Uh, but that's the kind of personality and persona that Enid takes on, and it's very weird because she works in the industry where she knows better. But that that rational side of her brain completely shuts down, okay? Mm -hmm. just completely disappears, uh, was there, like going back to that word again, wrestling on how you were going to bring that to the screen, how you were going to portray, wait a minute, how is this person whose job is to look at these films, know that they're fake? There, There's discussions in the movie when they're in the break room and they're talking about the guts they just saw on the scene and sausages. 
So, I mean, these people obviously know the difference. When did that break? How do you explain that break? But even in that opening scene, her her colleague is saying to her, you know, no one's going to think this is a documentary, you know, it's so fake. One of the first lines that's delivered to her, she's taking it very seriously, yeah. even at that point. So Enid's got an obsession and her obsession is also her Achilles heel, which is her sister yes. and the tragedy and the, the need to make up for whatever went wrong, you know, back then. And that is her blinkered, you know, that she's completely blinkered to everything else. So I had this like visual theme as well through the film of her kind of traveling down dark corridors and alleyways and this idea that this is a woman who's becoming more and more enclosed in the way she thinks, the way she sees the world and what she wants to get, mm -hmm. like what her goal is, you know, that she's kind of traveling down these dark corridors to a much darker and darker place and there's no other alternative routes. So yeah. all of that was about somebody, even the aspect ratio shift was me kind of thinking about that sort of single-minded, you know, blinkered woman yeah. kind of just focused on one thing and everything else is going out the window mm -hmm. and and that's her trauma ultimately that's kind of led her to this place yeah. so yeah, yeah. Absolutely. so it was always an obsession you know an obsession film now another wonderful thing is uh in the woods when she approaches frederick the cinematography was absolutely phenomenal the just the way you'd showed the woods and even the light fog, it was just very scary. The atmosphere was very, very scary. Uh, I mean, who do you give credit to, or even yourself, for setting up the look and feel of the woods when she first meets Frederick and he's trying to pull that part of her, of what he thinks he's talking to another actress who's sane yeah. and normal and here to audition for a job, not realizing that this woman is she's she's gone i mean she's 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 yeah. lost it how did you achieve that setting that beautiful setting in the woods well as the director you describe what you're going for to your director of photography cinematographer um so you're you're talking a lot with them about atmosphere emotion and mood but ultimately i can't take credit for the actual lighting and you know it's me transferring those ideas to the director DP. of photography, yeah. the DP, who then needs to have the talent to actually bring that to life. And I work with uh, a DP called Annika Summerson, who I've known since we met actually at university. So we've been working together now for a long time. She shot most of my music videos and my short films. So we've worked together loads. And I agree, I think she just, she did such an incredible job on that scene, you know, on the whole film, but that scene in particular, because lighting a forest is mm -hmm. not easy, especially yeah. when you're not, we're not a massive budget film, obviously. So, um, you know, I, I was describing the smoke and you're always hoping with smoke that you're not going to have a windy day or a windy night because you can just have all that just blow away. And so even the special effects guys who are doing the smoke, you know, did such a great job because they have to kind of really think about exactly where their smoke points are and where the wind is and if that's going to change because you could just go, okay, and action, and then suddenly all the smoke is gone. gone. And that's happened before, you know. 
yeah. um, and it's incredibly frustrating. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's a combination of everybody making the film. Really, it's also the sound design and the music that's holding you, you know, atmospherically there. So we have a really beautiful piece of music. Well, it's dark and beautiful. Um, at that point, from our composer Emily Lavinise Farouche, who did this wonderful score that's very vocal, um, like lots of strange vocal sounds that she's processed and turned into like deep, dark noises, strange lullabies. And then also um, I remember saying to my sound designer, I wanted the sound of like weird men's voices that we could hear just off camera, like somewhere deep in the woods that there's something threatening. And, And I think we had trouble recording some some men's voices for that and at one point there was this somebody suggested oh should we just put foxes and I was like no it has to be men's voices because that's got what's going to make her feel more scared in that forest but it's it's really a combination of all the departments that you see you know even things like the way the sleeves looked on the on the nighty Mm -hmm. and in the costume like just it's it's all of those people coming together and doing their jobs really well so what do you think about the irony in the film where you have this person a censor whose job is to protect the public from seeing really graphic stuff actually be the one and probably the only one that is influenced by what she is watching to make her commit these atrocious acts and completely not be faced by them because uh, when she, going to that scene in the woods and then into the cabin and she starts seeing what she's been seeing on screen for real, she doesn't seem phased at all. Uh, mm. Do you see the irony there as someone as a censor trying to protect the public, but it's her, it's her that's yeah. gone influenced by the films that she's been watching. Yeah, and I mean, the the problem there is that Enid loses the ability to tell the difference between fact and fiction. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess, I remember hearing a da- David Cronenberg quote that was something like, the censor who's driven to protect is the most dangerous censor of all. Yeah. And he also said something along the lines of, like, it's the censors who seem to have stopped being able to tell the difference between fact and fiction. And I love those little quotes that you kind of hold on to as you're writing a project like this, because, you know, that's the problem is the people that can't tell the difference between fact and fiction generally weren't the horror fans. Yeah. Like me as a kid, I loved watching horror because I knew it wasn't real. Like the things that scare you are the things that you think are real, you know, but even as a kid, you can tell the difference between mm-hmm. between reality and fantasy. And when it's a fantasy film and it's like a spooky ghost story or something, it's like, woohoo, this is like fun scared. I can enjoy this. But um, I think during this particular period, there were a lot of people who couldn't tell the difference between fiction and reality. Yeah. That yeah. was where the problem lied. So, yeah. So in the time that we have left, I want, let's hear, how did you get your start in this industry? You just told us you've been a, a fan of film for a long time. When did you realize that this is what you wanted to do as a career? Um, quite young, actually. I mean, I was always watching films, loved films. Um, I had, like, my mum was an actress, like, in her kind of mm-hmm. younger years. Um, and she was an acting teacher and, and so she had the, like a DV camera that she'd film her students with and I'd borrow it and like 
me and my friends would like make films and stuff like that. But I kind of thought at that point I wanted to act. And then it wasn't until I went and did a performing arts course and I got the opportunity to direct that I realized that actually it was shaping something from the outside that I was really excited by because it, it fused my passion for performance, storytelling and art. I was really into painting weird pictures and stuff. And then, you know, I was much more interested. That was a theatre course, but I really wanted to make films because I wanted to be able to control point of view. And so really from there, which would have been about 16, 17, I kind of decided I, I want to make films and, you know, tell stories through films. And I didn't really differentiate between directing and editing at that point. It was like I was just doing everything thing because i didn't have anybody else to make you know exactly exactly when you're starting yeah. out you got to do a, you got to wear a lot of hats what yeah. what was your first directorial debut film like do you, you would say your first like <laughs> professionally accredited directorial debut i mean i made loads of short films like i made my first short when i was 17 again just me with my friends and stuff and then i made short films through university and um and then you know i don't know if short films count because they're not no I they mean, do they're, they're very popular well in that case i guess um yeah it would probably be where i was working with a crew would have been a short that i made probably like 2006 2007 okay. um and that was called the house of virgins um, and it was about a God-fearing old lady who uh, has to look after a small boy and she thinks he's a sinner and she ends up basically uh, killing him and eating his heart. Yeah. Um, so that was lovely. Uh, so that was probably the first thing I did with a crew. But then I guess in terms of like, you know, professional being paid would have been the music videos that I started to make. So now um, after school, did you uh, go through like the university route or you're like, you know what, I want to learn on the job. I want to get myself on sets and learn how it's done. I went and I was a runner um, at like a post-production company, then went to university and did a practical film degree. And then I went back to running at like post houses and through post-production and working on animations as well I ended up editing but the whole time was making my short films so I was always like kind of one foot in the industry at that point and then making my own shorts and then I went off and worked as an editor for a while mm -hmm. and then I ended up after doing that I ended up deciding to do jobs that meant I had as much freedom and time as I could find so mm -hmm. I could focus on like making stuff so that meant stepping away from the industry slightly because the, any industry job means that you're working all the time in that role. So, you know, I, I kind of balanced that by like going and doing random jobs. Like I think I had a weekend job in a pub and stuff like that. So you've got a bit of money coming in, but you can always drop things and go and shoot something or get a job working on set and learn something. So it's Not a bit of a mixture. Now, when it came to uh, Sensor, was the whole thing planned out? Like when you started production, did you have like distribution already in place or did you guys go through uh, the, the film festivals? Uh, how did you end up, you know, going from production to distribution? Did you have to go through the film festival circuit? Yeah, so we had a sales agent, uh, Protagonist Pictures. We had them on board at script stage, so okay. before we shot the film. 
And then we, um, the film world premiered at Sundance uh, this year. Nice. And that was where we got most of our distribution deals. So Magnolia in the US and then MGM bought the film for most of the rest of the world. So in the UK, we're with Vertigo re- releasing and MGM um, partnering. Um, so that all happened kind of off the back of Sundance and we went to Berlin Film Festival. And it's really weird because this year has been so different, you know, yeah. like in terms of festivals being virtual, not being able to go. So right now we've just had our UK release and then next weekend I'm going to my first film festival abroad in France because wow. I haven't been able to travel to any. So it's like it's kind of all back to front, but, yeah. you know, it's fine. It's all good. Like, I'm just happy that. Yeah, the industry is finding its way on how to, we're still in COVID, we're not, you know, hope we were all hoping we'd be done with it by now, but we're not, we're still in the middle of COVID and everything, a lot of stuff is still being done virtually, but to be shown at at, uh, Sundance and, you know, to get picked up, congratulations on that, That's, that's, that's awesome. Moving forward in your career, uh, it sounds like directing, just from listening, is your number one passion with writing very close behind? Yeah, I I kind of write in order to direct the things that I want to direct. <laughs> right, writing is the, I enjoy it. I do like being kind of thoughtful and quiet and like having that period. It's quite schizophrenic writing, directing, because you kind of stay in on your own to write and you yeah. lock yourself in a room and, and obviously I co-write, so we we work on Skype quite a lot as well. And then you do the directing bit and you're like, you know, managing a whole crew and cast and then doing lots of public facing stuff. So after this, you know, period, I'm going to be going back into hibernation and, and writing, but I've got loads of ideas that I'm really excited about. So I am looking forward to the writing now. Are um, they all horror related? They're all very dark, definitely. Okay. Stay with I that. Think, Stay with yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> there's one that's definitely a horror, one that's maybe a dark comedy, another one that's like, oh, I don't know, horrible, but I don't know if it's a horror. But yeah. <laughs> oh, Prana, we are out of time. This has been yeah. absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. It's uh, such a pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. We, I am looking forward. Uh, I want our audience because we're in the, here in the United States. We're in the middle of the afternoon. A lot of people are working. A lot of people are going to watch this as it gets yeah. archived and see this interview. So, guys, please, if you haven't watched it yet, watch Censor. It's available on Amazon here in the United States, at least. Voodoo, Amazon Prime, uh, Google Play. It's everywhere. Okay, it's. You won't be disappointed. You'll love the film. Uh, Prano Bailey Bond here wrote it, directed. Did you have any part in producing? No, it was produced by uh, Helen Jones. Okay. Okay. So please check it out. Any final thoughts you want to share with our audience before we go? I just, yeah, please check it out. Exactly what you said. You've already said it. Check it out. Hope you enjoy it. Watch um... Censor. It's an amazing (laughs) film especially if you watch saint maude and you love saint maude they're both like i don't want to say one's better than the other but they're like right here i mean they're both amazing so thank you so much guys thank you so much for tuning in we'll be back with you again tomorrow i want to thank prano for being our guest and uh everyone stay safe and remember always stay walking have a good one bye bye